0: Okay, keep things moving right along this morning. Um, we want to share a word I call it a prayer for graduates. And uh, I want to focus my, uh, our thoughts this morning on our seniors who are graduating and their families. And I thought a fitting passage would be uh, John chapter 17. And as you know, John 17 is uh, Jesus' uh, final prayer Right before he went to the cross for his disciples, and uh, it really is an amazing passage of scripture. There's so much in this in this uh, passage, um, and to get the setting and the context of this and why I thought it was fitting for seniors, um, you know, Jesus was about to leave his disciples. We're kind of sending our seniors away. We don't leave them; they leave us, is the way this actually works. But uh, Jesus was about to leave his disciples, and he was. Uh, entrusting them to them the ongoing uh, of his ministry, the cross, the resurrection, the future of all those eternal souls that would be saved because of the cross. Jesus was leaving in the hands of the disciples. Now, um, like our high school seniors, uh, the the, um, disciples had been with Jesus for three years, kind of a three-year high school kind of deal. And uh, the three years was up, Jesus was leaving, and he was turning it all over to them. And uh, if you know much about what's going on with the disciples at this point, that's a pretty scary thing. And uh, it was clear that the disciples hadn't really got it all yet, uh, didn't really understand all that was going on, and Jesus was completely leaving them. And not only that, but in John 17 he tells them that, by the way, the world hates you, they'll want to kill you, Uh, it's just a small problem, don't worry, because I saved you out of the world, uh, but I'm leaving you here. In fact, I'm sending you out into that world that wants to kill you. Okay, have a nice life. And uh, he sends them off. And that's uh, sometimes as parents what it kind of feels like when we send our kids out. It's like, you know, it's a scary world out there. It's hostile. We know that they want to kill us. And, you know, here's the deal. Jesus says the world hates you because you're Christians. Here's what your parents have done to you, kids. For 18 years, they have taught you everything it means to be a Christian, to live the Christian life, to look like a Christian, act like a Christian. And then they send you out into this world that hates Christians. Like you can go home and thank your parents for that. Thanks for making me a total oddball in the world. And then sending me out on my own to face this world that hates Christians. Uh, Well, that's what Jesus did. And uh, when you think about what Jesus prayed here, and he gets down to this last moment, last hours with his disciples, He's taught them, he's instructed them, he's done everything he can. And when all is done, what he has left to do is to pray, to pray for his disciples. And uh, as parents, a lot of times, that's what, kind of what it comes down to. We've done our thing, and we send them out as young adults, and then we pray. And that's uh, maybe all that's left. And so, I want to share just a couple of thoughts from John chapter 17 this morning. Uh, as, uh, as we do think about sending our kids away uh, as they take this big step in their life, as you students enter into a world uh, on your own in many respects. So let me read uh, Jesus' prayer and I'll read the whole thing. I, I'm just going to pick out a few verses, but let me read the whole thing. Uh, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the time has come Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone in all the earth. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by doing everything you told me to do. And now, Father... Bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I have told these men about you. They were in the world, but then you gave them to me. Actually, they were always yours, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the words you gave me. And they accepted them, I know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world but for those you have given me because they belong to you and all of them, since they are mine, belong to you and you have given them back to me so they are my glory. Now I am departing the world I am leaving them behind and coming to you. Holy Father, keep them and care for them, all those you have given me so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I have kept them safe. I guarded them so that not one was lost, except the one headed for destruction, as the scripture foretold. And now I am coming to you. I have told them many things while I was with them, so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They are not part of this world any more than I am. Make them pure and holy by teaching them your words of truth. As you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself entirely to you, so they also might be entirely yours. I am praying not only for these disciples, but for all who will ever believe in me because of their testimony. My prayer for all of them is that they will be one just as you and I are one, Father, that just as you are in me and I am in you, so they will be in us, and the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are, I in them and you in me, all being perfected into one. Then the world will know that you sent me and will understand that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want those whom you've given me to be with me so they can see my glory. You gave me the glory because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me and I have revealed you to them and will keep on revealing you I will do this so that your love for me may be in them and I in them. Uh start first off with a word to parents. Uh, he says in verse 2, For you have given him authority, that is the Son, the Father has given the Son authority over everyone, and he gives eternal life to each one you gave him. Uh, the bottom line is that our kids belong to God. They really are at best only on loan to us for a short time. He says again in verse 6, i revealed them to the ones you gave me from this world. In verse 9 he says, My prayer is not for the world but for those you have given me because they belong to you. Uh, Our kids belong to God. Uh, They're on loan to us for about 18 years. God gives us children for, I think, two reasons. One, to teach us incredible patience. We think our kids you know, come into our life for their benefit. Really, it's for our benefit. He says, you know, you're very impatient. I've got just the trick. I'll give you children. And 18 years later, we're much more patient, right? Mm, okay, maybe not. Maybe we need 18 more years. Um, he also gives his kids to learn how to trust him more. Great motivator to pray. It's, uh, it's having children. I've pray pray, prayed more since I've had kids. I realize there's a lot I can't do. Um, God gives us our kids. Ultimately, though, they are his care and his responsibility. You know, parents, you are about to let go of your kids, those of you who have seniors. Someday all of us parents do that. We let go of our children. We turn them loose in the world. Their spiritual well-being is in God's hands. You don't have to be overly worried. I mean, worry enough to pray, okay? Jesus prayed that the Father would protect His disciples, and the right response for us as parents, and we let go of our kids, is not to worry over them, not to call them 50 times a day, you know. Heaven forbid that you should like show up at their dorm at school, okay? Uh, just don't do that, okay? Just don't do that. But pray, pray for God's protection over their life, okay? Ultimately, uh, and we won't look at all the verses, but, but. They are in God's hands and God is the one who is in charge and responsible for their eternal life and their walk with him and their eternal existence. And God will take care of our kids just as he takes care of us. He will protect them. Um, Jesus also talks here, and let me address now, turn more towards you who are students. Uh Jesus makes some amazing declarations in this passage, and there's really four things that I want you students to grab hold of that I hope will give you something to hang on to as you start life on your own. The first thing is, uh, is making God the number one priority of your life, making knowing God the number one priority in your life. Let me read verse 2 and 3 again. Jesus said, For you have given the Son authority over everyone in all the earth, he gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent. Uh, to know God. He says literally, this is eternal life to know the true and living God and to know Jesus, who he sent. Um, what is eternal life? You know, a lot of times we think eternal life means living a really, really long time. And it's true, that's partly what the word means. It means to have a very long life, never ending, in fact. But the word, as Jesus uses it here, has more to do than just how long you live. It really has to do with how deep, the quality of your life. Uh, What Jesus gives here, he says, I give you eternal life. It doesn't mean he gives you the ability to live forever. The reality is, everybody lives forever, somewhere. Eternal life is the possession of every human being. Uh, Some may not actually want it, but they get it. Um, what Jesus offers here is a quality, a kind of life, that is not just forever, but is infinitely deep in God. Uh, great, greatest line out of the, the most, the Pirates of the Caribbean number three. I forgot what it's called. Uh, end of the world. There you go. End of the world. Best line in the movie was this. Uh, the trick is not living forever. The trick is living with yourself forever. Right? Remember that line? Good line. You should write it down, make a little embroidered thing, put it on your wall. Um, the trick is not living forever. It's living with yourself forever. And what Jesus is talking about is he's offering us through his blood, through the cross, through the new life he offers, a different kind of life that we can take possession of today. A lot of people think eternal life is something that you get when you die. I always thought that was kind of weird. You know, you die to get eternal life. Like if it's eternal, how does dying get it for you? Uh, That seems a bit kind of ironic. And that's because it's a misunderstanding. Jesus gives us eternal life here and now today. What he wants to give you is a kind of life that is worth living now. And he explains that. He says what that life is, is a life rooted in knowing God. He said this is eternal life, knowing God, knowing God. Eternal life doesn't just mean you live for a long time. It it ultimately means you have a life that is based and rooted in a relationship where you know God personally and intimately and deeply. It is ultimately about discovering daily what the love and goodness of God is all about, knowing Him as a good and perfect Father, knowing Him intimately and personally as a uh, being, as a person who is a part of your life. Um, and I don't mean here just knowing things about God. You know, you all, all of you who in, are graduating went to Grace. I know at Grace you have to take at least one or two Bible classes and they tell you stuff about God, which means I'm assuming you can't graduate unless you know something about God. Okay, that's great and it's a good thing that the school does that. But what Jesus is talking about is so much more than that. It is not just knowing stuff about God. It is encountering Him in a personal experience. Uh, the word that's used here means a knowledge or a knowing that comes about through personal experience. Okay? You know, I try to explain to Thai people what cold is. I live in Colorado. I've been out in blizzards. You know, I've been cold. And you try to explain to a Thai person what cold is, and they don't understand because for them, cold is like, you know, when it rains and it's kind of windy and you're on your motorcycle and it's like, 60 degrees. And just because they have three parkas on, you know, and look like they're an Eskimo, they think they're cold. Uh, That's not cold, right? We we know, those of us that live in colder climates, know what cold is. Well, how do we know? Well, because we've experienced it. Because we've had frostbite. We've had our nose so cold it just runs like a faucet. And we've had our fingers so stiff they hurt. See, we know what cold is. What Jesus invites us to is to knowing God that way through experience, through encounter. And I pray that that would be the number one priority of your life, that you would seek after God, that nothing would be more important to you in your life than seeking Him daily and somehow, some way, encountering Him in your life, Uh, meeting Him in His Word, meeting Him through prayer, meeting Him through worship, where you taste and encounter and experience the true and living God. And I can tell you, there is nothing like it. There is nothing like coming to the place in your life where you have met God personally, not just through faith, and you know, we all come to faith in God and we, He comes into our life, but I mean taking it day by day deeper and deeper and deeper so that you have a walk with Him that is real. The reality is that the world you are going out into will tell you that, you, that first of all, there's no God to know, and that if there is a God to know, you certainly will never encounter him through Christianity or through the Bible. That instead, you need to go out and sit under a tree and, you know, suck your thumb and do weird stuff, and then somehow maybe you'll have this spiritual encounter with God. Well, the world can't know God because they don't know Christ and they don't know the cross. You can know God, and I encourage you to make it the pursuit of your life above everything else to know him. Uh, second thing, um, I really believe that Jesus wants you to be happy. <laughs> Seems like kind of a weird thing to say. Certainly, I know your parents want you to be happy. All the rules, all the things your parents tell you not to do, they tell you not to do that stuff. They tell you not to have fun because they want you to be happy. Okay? That's the way it works. I don't know. I don't understand it either, but that's what it's all about. They want you to be happy. Okay? And even more so, Jesus wants you to be happy. In fact, Uh, One of the most amazing things he says in this prayer is in verse 12, uh, verse 13. He says, and now I'm coming to you, Father. Jesus is praying, I'm coming to you, Father. And I've told these disciples many things while I was with them. Uh, He taught, Jesus taught day in and day out. He taught them many things. He says, I taught them these many things so that their lives would be filled with my joy. Why did Jesus... Teach all this stuff. Why did Jesus spend all this time and energy telling all this stuff to his disciples? Well, ultimately, one of the reasons is that he wanted them to be filled with his joy. Jesus wanted his disciples to be happy. He wanted them to know uh, a deep and abiding joy, which is part of that eternal life. To be truly happy, uh, God wants that for you. Uh, he wants you to be happy and you think well that sounds kind of like a selfish thing but if God wants it for us it's not a selfish thing in fact it's part of what glorifies God it's part of how he displays his glory in us as if we're happy picture this you know a couple stands up and they say this is you know our husband and wife we have been happily married for 25 years or some people say it this way we've been married for 25 years you know 17 of them have been happily you know it's not that kind of thing um, now we, we look at that couple and it says a lot about their marriage or their relationship if they can say that. Uh, if they were instead to stand up and say, hi, we've been, we've been married for 25 years and we want you to know we've been miserable the whole time. Okay, we would go, okay, something's wrong with those people. Uh, yet it's interesting that in many Christian circles this is how we do Christianity. I've been a believer for 25 years and yes, it's all been miserable. It's like a badge of courage to be Christian and miserable. You ever notice that? Uh, It's like somehow being happy and being a Christian are mutually exclusive things. And uh, kind of the reason for that is we have taken the wrong understanding of happiness, that happiness can only come about as a result of sin. So Christians Christians tend sometimes to distance themselves from happiness. And it's like, I'm a righteous and holy person. I'm not happy. Okay? And we we applaud them. Go, Oh man, praise God. He's not happy. Right? So... (laughs) They're not having fun. They're not, they're not sinning, right? Um, that is totally uh, as far as you could possibly get from what Jesus desires for our life. And, uh, you know, sadly, we've been in these kind of churches. You go in these churches, nobody smiles. Uh, nobody, nobody looks happy. They, 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 they go to great effort to make sure they don't look happy and they're not happy because, you know, they don't want to be mistaken as somebody who's happy. And they do a good job convincing everybody. Uh, that's not Jesus' plan. He said, I taught you all these things so that you would be filled with my joy. God wants you to be happy. Uh, he wants you to enjoy life. Uh, the problem is, is this, I really believe, is that we, we've come to understand happiness wrongly. And we see it one of two ways. One, that, that only happiness Sin can bring happiness, okay? And so all the things that the world offers, that the world says will make you happy, happy, we avoid. So therefore, we also avoid being happy. Or we look at it this way. We see God as some kind of bargaining chip. And a lot of Christians look at life this way. They think, you know, if I do all the things God tells me, you know, I read my Bible a lot like I'm supposed to. I have my devotions. I I pray. I, I go to church. I even give money. I serve God. I do everything that God wants. Then... God will owe me something and he will give me what I want to make me happy. That's also a really bad understanding of what happiness is and how it works with God. And the assumption is that somehow we can barter God or, or get God in a corner where he feels guilty and owes us something and then he'll make us happy. That's not what true joy is and that's not how it works. The reality is that all true joy and happiness begins with Jesus. It begins with knowing God. He says, I want you to be filled not with just happiness or joy. I want you to be filled with my joy. With my joy. There is no joy and there is no happiness like the happiness that existed before the world began within the Trinity. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before the world began, were they happy or were they miserable? What do you think? Were they having a good time and having a wild party and having fun? Or were they sitting around looking miserable, staring at each other, going, Man, life's a drag? Well, you know, I think they were having fun. I think there was infinite delight and joy in the communion and fellowship of the Trinity. Jesus cannot wait to go back, to reunite with his Father, to share the glory. He says, Please take me back to the glory we shared before the world began. Well, what was that glory? Well, some of it was His majesty, was the splendor of who He is, but I really believe that a lot of at the heart of what that glory is, is, is the joy that they share together in, in fellowship, in communion, in being together. Joy begins in God's presence. Throughout Scripture, I know a lot of people will find this hard to believe, but actually if you read the Bible and look for it, it's there. On almost every other page of the Bible is joy, is happiness and delight. And interestingly, over and over again, the, the idea of joy is linked directly with God's presence. Let me give just one example from Psalm 16. Psalm 16 says this, verse 8, I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad, and I rejoice. God? He God God's with me. God is right here. I go to class, I go to science, science class, It's boring. I'm about to fall asleep. It's okay. Jesus is right here with me. Some of you still have finals left. You're not sure. If you failed this final, you know you don't graduate. It's a bit scary. Jesus is right beside you. As you go through everything in life, Jesus is right beside you. The psalmist says, no wonder my heart is glad. See, there's joy in knowing God is constantly with us. You show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasure of living with you forever. Uh, That's what God wants for you. That's what Jesus wants you. And there is no joy or happiness that does not begin with being in his presence first. That's why knowing him is so crucial. Because your happiness as a human being depends on knowing God and learning how to live in his presence. When you do that, you will be a happy person. Uh, If you do not do that, you will not be a happy person. You may have happy moments, uh, and certainly life has a lot of uh, short-term happy fixes, but you will not be long-term happy until you learn to live and abide in God's presence. Now, I will tell you this, seniors graduating, leaving, going off to university, the world has a plan for happiness. The world wants to offer you all kinds of stuff that it says will make you happy. The world says sex will make you happy, alcohol will make you happy, money, wealth, and stuff will make you happy. Um, getting drunk, having a hangover, throwing up your guts, and feeling miserable will somehow make you happy. Um, it's a lie. Okay, it is a lie. And uh, not to pick on famous people, but I just read an article this week about Lindsay Lohan, who uh, sad story. I mean, a girl who has had all of those things in abundance. She is a miserable, miserable young lady who is at the end of her world. Anything but happy. Why? Because all the things that God gives us to enjoy, we can ultimately only enjoy if we enjoy God first. That's the way it works. Joy and happiness comes when we are in God's presence and then the good things in life bring great joy. But if there is no God in our life and we are not abiding in His presence, the best things the world has to offer are ultimately hollow and empty. So my word to you is, man, have fun. Have fun. College is some of the best years of your life. Have fun. Enjoy life. But enjoy life that begins in spending your life in God's presence and understanding and learning the joy that He has for you as you walk and live for Him. A uh, Third thing I want you to grab hold of uh, is that you meet God in His Word. Throughout this prayer, Jesus talks over and over again about Him revealing Himself, communicating Himself, giving the Word, giving His message. Uh, I won't read all those verses, but let me just read a couple. Uh, In verses 6 through 8, He says this He says, I have revealed you, that is, He's praying to God. So, God, I have revealed you, Heavenly Father to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it, and they know it came from you, and they believe you sent me. Uh, Throughout this prayer, Jesus makes his message and his word core and central. Uh, and he talks about the many functions of his word. It is truth. Uh, it is the test of truth. The world says there's no such thing as truth, uh, but, but uh, the word of God is true, absolute true and truth. It builds faith as we uh, encounter God in his word. It builds faith. It gives us confidence that God's plan is good and true. Uh, Jesus talks about the sanctifying work of the word, uh, which means not only that it cleanses us, which it does, but it really sets us apart and equips us for ministry. It was cool to hear uh, that a lot of you want to go back to the mission field. A lot of you have a heart for ministry, uh, that you want to be a life for Christ in the world. What will equip you for that is God's Word. Uh, and we could talk a lot about that, but I want to I jump on these simple words. Jesus says that through this message, God has revealed the father God has revealed the father to us and what I would like to encourage you is that the place where we will most likely meet God is in his word is in his word if you want to know God if you want to have joy in God you must be young men and women who spend time in God's word um, i really believe that the word is if not the only door is the primary door through which we enter into God's presence. The place where we get to touch God face to face. It's the only tangible, hands-on thing we have that God has given to us. Everything else is kind of loose. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit's real. I believe the Holy Spirit fills our life. But, you know, it's hard to get your hands on the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe He's got His hands on us. And He His influence in our life is seen in many ways. But on our side of the equation, the one thing that we can grab hold of and go to on a daily basis is God's Word. And I would challenge you to be men and women of His Word. Now, by that I don't mean simply that you become like Bible answer man, you know. Uh, When I was 18 years old, I was a very zealous, gung-ho Christian, and uh, my mission in life was to become like a super theologian. And so I read the Bible for one reason and one reason only, so that I could crucify my enemies who were heretics. You know, I was looking for ammo so I could get into debates and and land blast all the heretics who were around me, okay? And so I studied the Bible, I read the Bible, I memorized verses, I I knew references way better than I do now, actually. I forgot them all. And my motive was so that I could get into arguments and show that I was superior to my poor, hapless victims, right? Okay, well, that was stupid, all right? It was just stupid and mostly a waste of time. Uh, Don't read the Bible just to be smarter than everybody else. Okay, it's proud, it's vain, and it's just a waste of time. Read the Word to meet God in its pages. Like Adam and Eve walking in the garden. Uh, They had no idea as they walked in the Garden of Eden when God might show up. And I invite you to go to God's Word and walk through it slowly, carefully, not racing through it, but meditating on its words. Uh, we, we don't teach and we don't know the art of meditation, which is too bad. Something you need to get books on, read, study, what it means to meditate on God's word, to allow it to sink deep into your heart and soul, and as you do that, to encounter God in its pages. I guarantee he will meet you there. The crazy thing is, when I was Mr. Theolo- junior Theologian, you know, and I was reading just for ammo, even then, sometimes God would show up and I would meet him there. Scary. He would just show up when, there's God speaking to me. And it was kind of cool. Now, when I actually go there for that purpose, I encounter him every time I go. He is there. He wants to meet you in his word. And he wants to speak to you. Um, Be minimum another word. Uh, You know, the trend in a lot of churches, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, worship, we've, We've made worship oftentimes a means to encounter God. And I believe this morning as you worshipped, as you took communion, I hope you met him there. I hope you encountered God there. But there's become a move that says, you know, we really don't need the Word or the teaching of the Word or studying the Bible, that all we need is worship. You know, all we need is some good praise choruses and our, 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 our iPod, some earphones, and, you know, a beautiful walk in the forest. And that's all you need to encounter God. Uh, that's a dangerous path. Jesus didn't say, I came and gave them praise choruses to reveal you to them. He didn't say that. Okay? He said, I gave you my message. And through that message, they have, I have revealed you to them. I really believe that when we meet God in His Word, praise becomes powerful and effective. It becomes a great place to meet God. But when we flip those things around, we get in trouble if we use worship as a way to encounter God apart from his word, be men and women whose lives are rooted and grounded in God's word. Last thing, real quick. Uh, And actually, I don't have time to talk about this one because it's just too much. But it's an amazing concept. And I want you to, you know, in your life somewhere, you know, maybe down the road 20 years from now, like do a really deep study on these verses and decide they're really cool. That's what happened to me. Uh, verses 21 through 23 Jesus towards the end of the prayer says this Uh, he says my prayer for all of them that includes us Jesus was praying for you and I as he prayed these prayers he had us in mind when he said this he says my prayer for all of them is that they will be one just as you and I Father are one that as you are in me and I am in you so they will be in us and the world will believe you sent me um he says, "I have given them the glory you gave, the glory you gave me, so that they might be one, just as we are. I and them, and you and me, all being perfected into one. Then the world will know that you sent me, and will understand that you love them as much as you love me." Uh, you can do. We can do a whole series of sermons on this passage. It's amazing. Uh, but basically, Jesus says that his one of his earnest prayers for the church for the disciples is that we as as God's family would be one and what i believe he means by that is that we would be connected in intimate community that we would be the kind of people who have real authentic genuine relationships with each other where we love each other where we have compassion for each other where we are some way intimately involved in each other's lives To do that takes incredible humility. It takes unselfish living. And uh, to be honest, I think the church is light years away from this. Okay, I think if we've messed anything up, we have messed this up. And so my challenge to you, graduates, take this and make your generation the generation that does this. Okay, show us, because we haven't done it at all, or very poorly. And the world is waiting for this. Jesus says this. He says, this is your greatest apologetic. You know, when I was in the 70s, uh, Josh McDowell and a lot of these guys were writing books about defending your faith and evidence that demands a verdict and how to argue the world into believing God is true. And we've done that now for 30, 40 years. We've got proofs and arguments and we can debate people into the ground. And you know how many people have come to Christ through that? None. Very few because it does not convince anybody of anything. Jesus said this, your apologetic is this, when the world sees how you love each other and how you live together as one, they will know that God sent Jesus into the world and Jesus is for real. They will know that God loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus the Son. It is our only apologetic. It means defense, not that we're sorry. It means our defense of the faith. The only defense we have for the faith, the only thing that we can show the world that proves that that it's true, that it is real, is when we walk and live in unity. So that means pursue friendships that are deeply intimate and real, where there is community. When you get married, that's why it's so vital that your marriages are solid and where you as a husband and wife live together as one flesh. Because when you do that, it proves to the world that Jesus is real and that he loves us. Uh, find churches that, that make community of value and get involved in home groups and in small groups where you are connecting with other believers and you are living out unity, intimate community with other believers in Christ. Because it is the only proof we have to the world that Jesus is for real. Okay, all the other evidences uh, will bounce off uh, deaf ears, but when they see God's love at work am- amongst us, it's powerful. It's powerful. The world is desperately looking for a church that will reflect God's love in its relationships. That's real. Uh, that's a that's, that's a life mission there. Okay. And I challenge you guys to make that a core value of your life. I want to close with reading something that's been very helpful for me. And it kind of ties all these thoughts together. Um, this actually is from the, out of the autobiography of George Muller, who lived a whole long time ago. And it's kind of written in old English, so please bear with me. Uh, but it's about his own personal walk with God and something he learned... Uh, about how he made this happen knowing God experiencing God's joy um being with God and in his presence and I hope it's helpful to you helpful for you um it's been very helpful for me and I read this often um and so I hope for you as seniors especially it'll be something you can take with you it will help you as you seek to, to have your own walk with God um He writes this, he said, While I was staying at Nailsworth, it pleased the Lord to teach me a truth uh, which I did not receive from a human teacher, as far as I know, uh, the benefits of which I have not lost, though now more than 40 years have passed away since then. The point is this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord or how I might even glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. And you might be thinking, okay, this guy's weird. Okay, just hang with me. Okay? Um, he said, if I might set to seek the truth before the unconverted, or I might seek to benefit believers, I might seek to relieve the distressed, I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world. But if I was to do, to, were to do that not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this would not be done in a right spirit or heart. Before this time, my practice had been, at least for ten years previously, as a habit to get up first thing in the morning and give myself to prayer. Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself first to the reading of the Word of God and to meditation on it. Okay, key word there, meditation on it. That thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, and instructed. And that thus while meditating, my heart might be brought into an experience of communion with the Lord. I began, therefore, to meditate on the New Testament from the beginning, early in the morning. The first thing I did after having asked the Lord's, asked in a few words the Lord's blessing upon his word was to begin to meditate on the word of God, searching, as it were, into every verse to get blessing out of it, not for the sake of preaching the word or for teaching it, but for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. The result I have found to be almost invariably this, that after a very few minutes my soul has been led to confession or to thanksgiving or to intercession or to supplication, so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer, but to meditation, yet it turned almost immediately more or less into prayer. When I thus have been for a while making confession or intercession or supplication or giving thanks, I go on to the next words or verse turning all as I go into prayer for myself or others, as the word may lead to it, but still continually keeping before me that food for my own soul is the object of my meditation. The result of this is that there is always a good deal of confessing and thanksgiving and prayer mingled with my meditation, and that my inner man almost invariably is even sensibly nourished and strengthened And that by breakfast time, with rare exceptions, I am in a peaceful, if not a happy state of heart. Wouldn't it be great to eat breakfast just happy? Just go to breakfast, you know, you've been with God, you're just happy. Okay, does that describe any high schoolers you know? I don't know. (laughs) I'm just shooting for a wake, right? The difference between my former practice and my present one is this. Formerly, when I rose, I began to pray as soon as possible and generally spent all my time till breakfast in prayer, or almost all the time. At all events, I almost invariably began with prayer. But what was the result? I often spent about a quarter of an hour or half an hour or even more on my knees before being conscious to myself of having derived any comfort or encouragement or humbling of soul, and often after having suffered much wandering of the mind for the first 10 or 20 or 30 minutes or more. Only then. Ever had that experience? Here's this really godly guy. This guy got up first thing in the morning, prayed an hour every day, and he confesses, You know, the first 45 minutes was like really distracted. Okay? Anybody been there? Oh, yeah. How I pray. True. ADD. But listen to this. He says, I scarcely suffer this now. For my heart being nourished by the truth, being brought into this experience of fellowship with God, I speak to my father and to my friend about the things that he has brought to me through his precious word. It now astonished me that I did not sooner see this. And no book have I ever read about it and no public ministry ever brought the matter before me. No private discussion with the brothers stirred me up to this idea. Yet now, since God has taught me this point, it is as plain to me as anything that the first thing the child of God has to do morning by morning is to obtain food for his inner man. As the outward work of man is not fit for any length of time except we take in food, and as, this one of the f- and as it is one of the first things we do in the morning, so it should be with the inner man. We should take food for that as one must allow. Now what is the food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the word of God. And here again, not the simple reading of the word, so that it only passes through our minds, like a freight train, or as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it to our hearts. I dwell so particularly on this point because of the immense spiritual profit and refreshment I am conscious of having derived from it myself. And I affectionately and solemnly beseech all my fellow believers to ponder this matter. By the blessing of God I ascribe to this mode the help and strength which I have from God to pass in peace through deeper trials than in various ways I ever had before. And after having now uh, uh, over 40 years practiced this way, I can most fully and the fear of God commend it. How different when the soul is refreshed and made happy early in the morning from what it is when, without spiritual preparation, the service, the trials, the temptations of the day come upon us. Let me just add one thought to that. It's a great principle, great truth, and I challenge you to do it. Now, some of you, you know, morning, it just ain't gonna happen. You know, getting up early in the morning... It's just not going to happen. You know? And I'm one of those people that takes 12 cups of coffee you know, and a, a few Red Bulls uh, b- before anything kicks in. Okay? Uh, don't worry about so much the timing. Okay? Do it when your brain's on. Okay? And for you, it works great at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. It doesn't matter. The time's not what matters. What matters is that you feed your soul in God's Word and you allow yourself to meet Him. And, and that's what we as parents... That's what we long for for you. Of all the other stuff you do and succeed and and will accomplish is great. But what we pray is that you would walk with God, that you would be a person who knows his grace in your life. Uh, We're going to close this way. I'd like to have all the seniors come back up, and I'd like to invite their parents to come also. And we just want to do what Jesus did for his disciples. We want to pray over you. And uh, we're going to ask the parents to come and pray over you. And uh, if you'll all come, they will kind of a little spread out. And I'm going to ask Rick to also come. Uh, if you don't have a parent here, come anyway, and we will, we will uh, lay hands on you. And I just invite you to kind of um, gather around your students, lay hands on them, and uh, we, we, uh, we thank you for being a part of our fellowship, uh, for being a part of our family here, for the service you've given. And we really do just want to bless you as you go out. And I'm going to just ask Rick to pray. And, uh, but before we do that, let's just give a moment for uh, you as parents to pray over your kids. Uh, as we do that, those of you in the audience, please. Uh, Pray silently. Uh, some of you have been teachers. If you want to come and join and pray, that would be awesome. Uh, it would be great. And let's just uh, really pray for God's protection and his anointing over these students.